Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. My name is Nathaniel Worley, and today I'm joined by Professor Joe Sauce. Joe Sauce is the inaugural Cowles Chair for the Study of Public Service at the University of Minnesota, where he holds faculty positions for the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs, the Department of Political Science, and the Department of Sociology. His research and teaching explore the interplay of politics, inequalities, and public policy. His work has focused primarily on how various forms of social welfare and criminal justice governance in the U.S. have intersected with class, race, and gender as intersecting axes of oppression and predation. Sasa's co-authored book, Disciplining the Poor, was selected for a variety of awards. In 2016, Sauce was honored with the University of Minnesota's campus-wide award for outstanding contributions to graduate education, named a distinguished university teaching professor, and inducted into the UMN Academy of Distinguished Teachers. Sauce's current book project, co-authored with Joshua Page, is Praying on the Poor, Criminal Justice as Revenue Racket. Professor Sauce, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be able to sit down with you and, and talk with you about uh, the issue of of criminal justice, and uh, I'm actually I'm taking a class right now on uh, um, the school to prison pipeline. So I I was especially excited to see that the ath had you like um, giving a talk. And um, while I unfortunately won't be able to attend the talk, I'm glad I'm at least able to speak with you about it. Um, so if um, I could go ahead and just jump right in, then um, so issues like climate change, criminal justice, abolition. These are like huge, terrifying problems that seem impossible to solve, really, um, especially when we don't all agree on the causes um, or if the problems exist in the first place, which in itself is a problem uh, made worse by uh, disinformation. So while it does seem that some positive progress has been made at resolving these issues, they can't be solved overnight. And in the case of criminal justice reform or abolition, it can be easier to make these positive changes than with something like climate change, which it's just huge and <laughs> really terrifying. Um, but so I was curious, if you were in the position of authority to make these necessary changes in criminal justice, what do you think you would change first? Like first day on the job, what are you going to do? Uh, and pretend it's, it's kind of like you have absolute authority over it. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time uh, to do the podcast with me. Um, so I th obviously, that's a huge question. Uh, what would the ideal system look like or what would we want? I think that, um, you know, people come down on a variety of sides around reform and abolition, partly because of what they see as realistic to achieve in the current political environment and what we could turn that environment into, right? Politics is about possibilities and changing what's possible uh, as much as doing what's possible. So for me, if we're not sort of talking about the, the constraints and I get to come in and simply decide, um, I would probably take an abolitionist first step in the sense that um, I think that the institutions that we have uh, generate self-perpetuating dynamics uh, in a variety of ways, whether it's in uh, it creating large numbers of police who have unions that then become powerful, that feed back into the system, or corrections officers unions or sheriffs, uh, you know, associations, or whether it's in terms of uh, cycling people through prisons and sending them back into communities uh, with very little hope and very little opportunity, uh, very little support. 
uh, and and thereby continuing social problems in a variety of ways. So I would begin with a step of attempting to move away uh, from these institutions. Um, to me, I think that if you look at the research, I mean, I'm talking about the you know the best empirical research that we have. Investing more in prisons and investing more in police does very little for public safety, uh, and does very little uh, to try to to. Uh, improve public safety or reduce crime or deal with the social problems um, that communities are experiencing. Uh, I think that we know that there's a great deal you can do with built environments uh, from green spaces and lighting in communities and all those things to social investments uh, with education and health and uh, employment opportunities and all these things. I think those are the, you know, when people talk about reform versus radical, the word radical comes from going to the root of something. And I think that um, this is a situation where if we want to make serious headway, we have to be willing to go to the root. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely a, a, a great perspective on it. Um, so uh, there are just like so many factors at play, um, like you mentioned, um, especially even things like, like green space. Um, I remember something I saw relatively recently was um, the, it's like the, I, I don't remember exactly what it was called, but basically like a tree gap uh, between poor neighborhoods and wealthy neighborhoods. And I think the example was in somewhere, somewhere in Arizona, I want to say. Um, and it's, it's like, yeah, like I, I went to, um, I went to title one schools, uh, elementary, middle school, all of that. Um, and at, at the first school that I was at, and I was there for 10 years, um, we just had like a giant lot with no trees or anything, the playground equipment, people kept hurting themselves on. So it all got removed. And then I, I go into the North Dallas area cause that's where I'm from. And I just see huge private schools with like amazing landscaping and all of that. And it, it, it really started to put things into perspective for me. Um, especially now being here at like such a wealthy private institution, it's, it's, it's scary how like I'm trying to figure out how we can confront these things as well. Um, and kind of to that point as well, um, whether it's it's like comparing schools to each other to try to see what one school could could try to do better at um, um, anything like uh, police in the schools, anything like that, um, or it's comparing the U.S. to another country. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on like where you see progress being made in in other regions of the world um, that the U.S. could take notes on. Well, I'll just say there's progress being made in the U.S. actually. Um, so, uh, you know, we have lots of examples of, of some positive steps forwards in localities and in some cases uh, in states. Um, I think one of the things when we think about race and class and gender inequalities in the criminal justice system is to try to move our thinking uh, from a disparities framework, right? Uh, in other words, what's the gap between how uh, people who are racially coded as white or black or something else, um, what is the difference between how they're treated to within this system to understanding how the system as a whole, including the system encountered by uh, white people, right, has actually been shaped by race. And so – it's not just that we have racial disparities in who's imprisoned or racial disparities in who's charged or arrested or who violence is um, committed against by police. Those are all true and those are all huge injustices and we should maybe start there, 
right? That's a great place to start. But we should also understand that everyone is living under a police, a, a sort of policing state and a carceral state that has con been constructed through a kind of racial politics and a racial politics of division and fear, right? Now, within that, I would say, though, um, part of realizing that that's been constructed and built politically is realizing that all these things are not automatic. They're, they're subjects of political struggle. Uh, if that's been constructed, it's been constructed, you know, in the last 40 years, 40 to 50 years, in a lot of its uh, current scope and scale uh, and, and operations. And that's been through politics and that there's a great deal of politics happening, contesting that, changing that, uh, creating meaningful um, inroads. Are we going to have abolition tomorrow when I wake up? No. Are we, are we accomplishing real things that make a big difference? Absolutely. So going off that point about um, not getting abolition overnight, which it's definitely true, um, for the average Joe, is is voting the, the best use of time? Is something like protesting a combination? What do you think like um, the average person could do to help kind of dismantle the system? Yeah, so um, I think the, the contrast of insider politics and outsider politics, working within the institution, going and working in government or all of that or, or voting, uh, you know, and outsider politics of protests, social movements, challenging those institutions. I think that's a false opposition uh, a lot of the time. They each work through the other, right? Um, so we have a system in the United States in which, that is designed to stop uh, serious change. It's full of checks and balances, what we call veto points in political science, lots of opportunities for people to block action, right? And that's usually been overcome in one of two ways. One is bipartisan cooperation, right, which is the famous one that everybody likes to talk about. And the other is external pressure through protests and social movements that simply can't be ignored. And that pressure works in a way that's really important to understand, and here's the way. It's that disruption from below matters by threatening the coalition of those in power in government, right? And so Franklin Delano Roosevelt comes in and does far more radical things than he ever intended to do because the social movements and the protests of the days were very divisive. People said, stop doing that. You're being you're, This is divisive for the people who want to help you. Right. And people kept protesting. They kept rioting. They kept doing all sorts of same thing in the 60s with with the LBJ administration and the Great Society. And they kept going and they kept being divisive. And eventually those administrations had to push for and grant concessions to those movements, to those protests, because they needed them. Their, their, the foundation of their power was being threatened. Their coalition that they depended on was being divided. So they had to get that to go away so they grant concessions. Now, if those same movements and protests had happened and the opposing party had been in power, well, it would have unified the opposing party around the idea of getting tough with the protesters. Look at what happened when Black Lives Matter uh, started, you know, uh, when, when we saw the sort of huge um, – protests under the Trump administration. It actually unified the Republican Party's supporters around being tough with them. So in a way, in order to be successful, the protesters need people who are vulnerable to them in office. That sets them up to achieve more influence. And if you're somebody who wants to form things from the inside and you want to do really ambitious things, in some ways, the best thing that can happen to you is a protest that emerges that creates those openings to do more than those institutions usually allow.
So we have to sort of understand that this old argument that people are invested with their identities around sort of being an insider or an outsider are, are to some degree counter, counterproductive uh, because it really works through an interaction of the two. And so I, I think I definitely do see the, the benefits and usefulness of, of protesting. Um, I, I am still curious as to like for January 6th, I think like horrible, <laughs> like it, it was, it was riot. They were just, it was an insurrection, but to people there, they were like justified in their actions. They were just protesting peacefully, however they'd want to call it. Um, so I think there definitely like there is a point at which it's like protesting has gone too far. What do you think that point is? Well, so let me uh, step back from the question because I think it's a, Nathaniel, I think this is a wonderful question. So um, you're asking about the uh, sort of form of politics in general. And you're sort of using examples uh, from things that that you support and things that you um, uh, that are abhorrent to you and saying that makes you feel ambivalent. But imagine if I said to you, you know, I've seen some legislation that does good things and I've seen some legislation that does terrible things. And so I feel really ambivalent about legislation. What do you think the limits of legislation should be? Or what do you think, you know, or if I said voting has produced some terrible results and some good results, you know, protest is kind of a, it's funny that we have these conversations about protest at a certain level as if the form of politics is to blame for its worst uses uh, or its best uses. It's a form of politics. Um, I would argue that there is no such thing as democracy without protest there. Uh, it's a necessary, I think um, scholar Deva Woodley talks about it as uh, political swaling. Do you know about this? So swaling is when they burn part of the forest so that it will grow back. And our democracy requires a certain kind of swaling in some cases. You need protests uh, so in order to get the injustices onto the agenda that are being kept off so that no decision is even made on them. They're just excluded. Uh, and, and groups that have suffered injustices and been excluded, it's not like they're like, I think out of all the things we could do, let's choose protest. It's that nothing else has worked. And so um, my argument would be, yes, like every other form of politics, I could come up with examples that I think are absolutely fantastic uses of that form of politics. And I could come up with examples that, according to my values, are reprehensible. Um, but I don't think that that's uh, unique to protest uh, in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for the clarification as well. It's, um, it's, it's definitely helpful. Um, so slightly switching topics, just, just slightly though. Um, we've been talking about, um, the black lives matter protests in 2020, um, that are still continuing, but it's like the, I think public, um, support or not support, but, um, the publications, I guess, I, I might, I'm, I'm blanking on the exact word I want to use, but um, how often people are actually talking about the movement um, and reforms, everything like that. Um, so I, I was looking at something again today. Um, I was working for the mayor of Dallas um, in 2020, and we were getting people calling from both sides saying like, oh, like the mayor needs to support um, increasing the police's budget. Other people were saying like, oh, no, we have to like lower the budget. Um, and so I was looking at this information again. Um, 
it the overtime budget was cut by seven million in the twenty twenty budget, and then it increased overall by um, I think it's it's been about sixty million um, in the past fiscal year. Um, so it's like while the protests were larger, um, more consistent. Um, we saw at least some change occurring, um, but now it's like it's it's just kind of slipping away. Do you think this is something that it's not going to really like come about again until another tragedy, like another death actually occurs? Or do you think there are ways in which um, we can continue to have these discussions at a large scale? Yeah. So, uh, well, let me start by saying that it doesn't depend on another tragedy occurring because these tragedies were occurring weekly uh, before this happened and have continued since. So the, the, the shifting part is not the tragedy, um, the injustice, the taking of life, the abuse of police powers. That's going on all the time, um, very frequently, right? Um, what is different is mass protest, right? And I think that we never know exactly when the trigger is going to be for that. There's a certain amount that you can't predict and control around that. Um, and it often originates in the communities uh, that are most affected, as it should. Um, I think that that in many ways, uh, to go back to my earlier answer about the interplay of electoral and, and legislative politics, electoral representative politics, and protest, right, that you aren't going to get these major changes when the protests recede, right? The groups uh, that are most marginalized, that have the least power, um, rarely win in normal politics. And so what we saw was while the protests were going on, uh, they, you know, there was escalating talk of doing something big. And as those protests receded, it takes a long time to, for those processes to go through institutions. By the time people were actually voting on a lot of these things, there was no threat of division to the party's coalition. Uh, there was no outrage in the streets that was expressed in a way that could not be avoided. In this way. And so it's not surprising that things roll back a bit. In many cases, when we get really big changes, it's because there's successive waves uh, of protest. And we may still see that um, in some ways. But in most places in the U.S., um, uh, we have not seen any defunding um, sort of movement. There are a number of places in the U.S. where they've taken steps to take some funding from police departments and move it over to sort of mental health units uh, and public safety units of different kinds. And those experiments have actually gone uh, extremely well, far better than most people predicted uh, who were skeptical of them. Uh, so I think we're, we're actually starting to get a little bit of an evidence base, too, uh, that it's a good idea to open up these questions. The problem is that um, the, the police unions and their allies in local governments and in state governments, these are, these are powerful actors. Uh, and it's not going to be easy uh, to, to get around them and to, and to get some of these or to work with them and get some of these changes to happen outside of pressure from below. Mm. The, oh, one of the last points you just made about um, budget from police departments um, – decreasing by a bit to fund other things or just the budget increasing and um, helping to fund more social programs. Um, if, if we could talk a bit about that, um, I in, in my class yesterday, the um, school to prison pipeline class, we had a guest speaker talking about the um, uh, in Los Angeles, the um, um, uh, foster care system and kind of the like interplay with the criminal justice system that it has. Um, so state social programs like like the foster system 
while I I do see some benefits to it, I also see the downsides to it. Um, it's like all these things are very complicated, but um, to have effective social programs run by the state, for example, for um, like housing um, the homeless, for example, um, what type of role do you think the state should be playing in that? Like, should it be more of um, the state just gives funding to community-led groups? Should it be something coming from, um, like, the city hall, something like that? How do you think these sorts of programs could be best run with help from the state, but without the kind of, um, like, the predation of the state in mind as well? That's a great question. Thanks for that. And I think that in some discussions of uh, defunding the police or, uh, you know, moving away from the carceral state and the police state, uh, people sometimes have a rosy view of social welfare programs and what goes on in them. Um, The book that I wrote before this was called Disciplining the Poor, and it was about the disciplinary turn in welfare programs and the uses of welfare programs uh, to put poor families under surveillance, to punish them, uh, to do all sorts of things that you probably talked about with regard Uh, to the foster care system and child welfare systems and things like child taking and and those kinds of issues. And so people need to take a real hard look at what goes on in those programs before they think about just transferring money to them. They need to be changed as well, right? Um, But I would would just caution us against the idea that, um, again, just like if something's bad done with with protests, it's not necessarily a protest is bad, right? um, In the same way, I'd caution us against throwing out the role of the state um, just because state-run programs uh, have been operated in a certain way. If you look at uh, some of the most successful programs uh, in the world in terms of welfare states, they've often been national state-run programs, uh, whether it's national health care, national pension programs, uh, you know, Europe, some of the European programs where there's national access to college that's paid for through taxes and doesn't cost students anything directly, and they actually get a stipend while they go to college. Um, there are lots of good uses of government and government powers um, to run programs, it's a question of how they're designed. Um, And so, again, I would say uh, it's not about what's the role of the state versus not. That's going to vary across programs, right? But the the critical question is, how are the programs designed? Are they designed uh, around skepticism about the end that the individual is doing something wrong and needs to be put under surveillance? Uh, needs We need to set rules for them and regulate their behavior, tell them what to do, and then punish them when they violate the rules? Or is it designed around a citizenship model such that people uh, are entitled to this in some sense and should have access to it uh, and should be insured uh, against the sort of depredations and risks uh, that we all encounter through our lives? And do you see that second model um, very often in your studies or is it more of just like we do see it on occasion, but it's, it's not really the norm right now? Well, I think if you look at many, I I think most people would say uh, that through much of the 20th century, the second half of the 20th century, uh, and into fairly recently, that there are many examples in Europe of national welfare, uh, social welfare programs, welfare state programs that have been very effective. Oh, I I meant more uh, within the U.S. specifically. Sorry. Oh, uh, do I see examples of programs that are well designed? More of um, ones around like citizenship. Yeah. Well, I think absolutely. In fact, if you look at uh, the program that we call Social Security, usually, which is actually Social Security old age insurance, um, the concept of senior citizens didn't actually exist 
before that program really uh, was created in 1935. And in fact, if you think about it, who are seniors? They're just everybody, but older, right? Um, if you're in a group that lives to be that old, um, and if you do personally. Um, and, and so what made them a group? Well, what made them a group was, uh, and actually when I'll say, they were one of the most vulnerable populations, one of the most dependent populations, su frequently subject to abuse, uh, impoverished, and politically very marginalized. What happened with Social Security old age insurance? It was created as a transfer payment. So it's not that you put in all your life and then you get anything like your money back. It's on a year-to-year -year basis. We pay as we go. You, we, we put money into it and it goes to people who are benefiting from it. It's a transfer program, just like any welfare program. And what happened was that you began to have this group that shared a benefit. And they began to see themselves, and we began to describe that benefit as, for a certain group, senior citizens. And that notion was to suggest that they were deserving and entitled and full citizens, just like you and me. Um, and once that group became to have a shared interest, organizations began to spring up, right? AARP and all sorts of other organizations that um, represent their interests. And so then what happened? When their interests were threatened, right, they were... Uh, mobilized by those organizations. They got informed about what was happening. And so they got, they mobilized to defend their interests. And suddenly you had a group of people who had a lot of time on their hand because they're older. They're getting some financial support. They got organizations telling them when their interests are, you suddenly get this very powerful group um, in the polity. Right. And so I think if you look at programs like that or you look at the GI Bill after World War II, um, there's lots of examples of programs that have been extremely successful. Now, many of those programs, it should be said, uh, were very successful in ways that excluded. Right. On the basis of race or on the basis of gender. But those exclusions shouldn't be understood as the same thing as saying that those programs didn't work and that we don't know how to do this effectively. We very much know how to do this effectively, and we can do it, and we have done it. And we are running out of time, so I just have just one more question. Um, so when I was doing this background research for the interview, um, and I saw that you were a musician, I, I was like, oh, that's so cool. Um, so I listened to some of your music last night as well, but um, I was curious— um, because it's like, I, I think it's a small club to be a professor and a musician as well, um, at least with like music like out there. Um, I was curious um, to start. Do you know, do you know of Robert Schneider of the Apples in Stereo? I do know Apples in Stereo. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought it was just a, a little comparison because um, he's, um, I think he's teaching at University of Michigan. I think something like that. Um, but yeah, I was just like, ah. Oh. Professor, musician. Um, a lot of professors that I know are musicians on the side. Mm. Uh, a lot of them don't record, but some. But you know, uh, it's pretty common, I think, uh, for people to be interested in that. I don't think you find a lot of people who sort of continue with it as they get older and continue to to do that. But um, you know, it's been nice to sort of have both going mm. on. And so I was curious. I um, when I'm studying, I try to listen to music that's like just. I don't know. It's, it, it can be a, a bit odd sometimes. And I, there's a playlist I was listening to recently that was, um, it was uh, coal mining songs, um, like protest songs. I was curious, do you have sort of like a protest type song that, uh, that you enjoy or just something of, of kind of that type of music? Yeah, well, I grew up in East Tennessee. 
Um, and so, you know, that's part of the Appalachian area. And I grew up with a lot of that music and it was a big influence on me. Um, and I think that there's a really rich history. You know, Nashville became Nashville because the people where I'm from in East Tennessee in the hills uh, with the hill music came together with the folks on the Memphis side of Tennessee with the blues. And they sort of Nashville is in the middle. Um, and but so that kind of music was a big part of my life and continues to be. Um, I think that there are a few songs that I would uh, point to. I, I've always loved Which Side Are You On. Um, oh, and, yeah, I, I, that was one of the songs that I listened to. And if you've never heard it, I think that uh, Billy Bragg's version of that is a very, very nice uh, modern version of Which Side Are You On. Uh, for something that probably most people have uh, not heard, that's an interesting sort of labor, uh, it's a bit of a metaphor, but um, a, a, an interesting labor song uh, is Audra May's uh, the Happiest Lamb. She's from Texas. You may know Audra May. I, I unfortunately don't, but I'll definitely have to I'll check her out. Um, so unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for today. Professor Sauce, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I, I think both enlightening me more, but also hopefully our listeners as well. Um, so to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. 